Bibles to Esther. Esther chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. Hear the word of God. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Amen. Father God, we approach your word uh, with reverence. We recognize that uh, it was written for our admonition, and it is our desire, Father, to submit our lives to it, to be encouraged, to grow by it. But Father, also, I pray that you would receive our worship as we respond with gratefulness and with whatever responses your Spirit calls for from our hearts. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully bring your word and for each one of us to live it out to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In a, a lot of ways, the story of Esther reminds me of the uh, English Reformation I think both of them were kind of weird circumstances in which they came about. And uh, even though God used both Darius and King Henry VIII to bring about a Reformation, uh, they neither were very interested in the Reformation. Both were driven by political expediency. They were both driven by lust. Uh, neither of them uh, has a very high value for life. And yet God turned around the opposition of Satan and used it against Satan and the advancement of his kingdom. In fact, when I was reading through Daubigny's uh, history, and there was another one, I can't uh, think of the name of it, uh, but it draws out some of the most remarkable, sometimes they seem like trivial events, but ironically, they were pivotal at the Reformation. 
And uh, I've read this one to you before, but it's my favorite. I love it, and I'm going to read it to you again. Uh, it says, King Henry VIII of England sent a delegation to the Vatican to patch up the political differences between himself and the Pope. The delegation was led by the Earl of Wiltshire, and in case you know the history, he was Anne Boleyn's father, and uh, the king wants to marry Anne, okay? The Pope says, no, you can't do it. And so they're trying to talk the Pope into letting him go ahead and, and get this done. So anyways, the delegation was led by the Earl of Wiltshire, who took along his dog. As was customary at that time, the Earl prostrated himself before the Pope and was about to kiss the Pope's toe. Uh, the Pope, willing to receive the homage, thrust his foot toward the Earl, and his dog, watching, misunderstood the action and went to the defense of his master. Instead of a kiss, the Pope got a bite on the toe. This enraged the Swiss guard, and they killed the dog, and this so angered the Earl that he refused to proceed with the mission for which he had been sent, and he returned home without having accomplished anything. After his return to England, King Henry VIII took steps to separate England from the jurisdiction of Rome. Now, in a sense, you could say the English Reformation uh, was produced by a dog bite, okay? <laughs> now, not exclusively, because the Lord used that and the lust of the king and, and political ambition and hundreds of other details to, um, as well as this dog, uh, to promote his causes and to frustrate the attempts of those who would have short-circuited uh, that Reformation uh, back, uh, back in those days. And uh, even though God is not the author of sin, he's not tempted by sin, he does not tempt anyone else to sin, he has to be able to control all sins to keep them from ruining his plans. In fact, if God does not control all things, he cannot control anything according uh, to the scriptures. And you can see many examples of this. You see that every detail of the crucifixion was planned ahead of time, and yet he still held men responsible for it. You see that every detail of uh, Joseph's being sent down into Egypt, that was planned ahead of time by the Lord. But Joseph said, you meant it for evil. God intended it for uh, good. And so uh, we need to uh, look at the small details of history and the small details of this book. You know, who would have thought that this petty argument between two men and it's just a pride trip, right? This petty argument between two men is going to endanger the lives of every man, woman, and child of the Jewish nation throughout the, the empire. And yet, God uses exactly this event to cause that to happen so that His people who are somewhat backslidden are going to be pressured to be drawn closer to the Lord. In fact, when you read history with an eye to providence, you're going to see all kinds of little details that seem trivial, but they're fulcrums you know, by which God moves history. Um, you know, for example, um, Ulysses S. Grant almost was not a military man. The only reason he was a military man was because uh, his arrival to the cadetship at West Point had six toes on each foot instead of uh, five toes, and so he was disqualified. If uh, Napoleon had been born two months earlier. He would have been an Italian, not a Frenchman. Uh, a lot of accidents of history, you know. Uh, William Carey, uh, he had been working for years and years on translation work and linguistics, 
And the night before it was all going to be printed, it burned up in a fire. And it was such an incredibly hard blow, but it wasn't an accident. Uh, God used that to generate incredible uh, amounts of money and incredible numbers of people to go to India and to help out in that work. And so I, what I want us to see is there is nothing in life that is by accident. In fact, that's where we're going to start is in verse 7, that the dice, uh, the Persian word was poor, um, and the Hebrew is lot, and uh, uh, we call them dice. But there was a power behind the poor. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Now, Haman thinks that there is a, a power of luck behind this poor, but the reader knows better. Uh, the reader knows that uh, God himself is uh, behind this, and Haman would not have probably engaged in any military action without consulting with trained priests. Sometimes they would read the intestines of animals. Sometimes they would um, cast dice. There were various ways that they looked. But uh, here is Haman. He's sitting there in the chair waiting for them to do their work, and they're in front of him casting these dice, and they keep casting and casting. Uh, the word until in the Hebrew implies there's a repeated casting. It wasn't like two times that they cast dice, okay? Uh, they're doing it day by day to see which day is going to happen. Well, none on, this, none on this month, and they go on to the next month until they come to the end of the year. And this might have given a little bit of a clue to Haman. There's somebody watching out for these Jews, uh, but uh, he doesn't see it that way. It finally lands on a day that he thinks is lucky, but the, the reader knows better. The real power behind the poor is Jehovah God, His providence. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so one of the things I want us to realize, there is no such thing as chance, and it doesn't matter how bad things get in your life, God has orchestrated that perfectly for your needs for all of eternity. Uh, just as the month and the day and the hour of the crucifixion was determined, the month and the day of this battle of Gog and Magog were determined by God, and it was perfect. It was time perfect. In fact, the timing was predicted, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. Now, that's encouraging, but we need to look at the flip side of the coin as well, because just because God controls all details of history does not let us off the hook. We are still free moral agents, and we are responsible for the sins that we engage in. He overrules their uh, sinful actions, but he holds them responsible. Let me give you an example. Acts 2 says about Jesus, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Okay, he puts the blame on them for the crucifixion. Yes, God had already predestined every detail, about a hundred details uh, surrounding, you know, this passion of Christ. And yet he says, you wanted to do it. You were motivated to do it. You actually did it. You're the ones who get the blame for this. It was your own sinful dispositions. I didn't force you to do a thing. And so uh, both human responsibility and divine sovereignty, we don't always understand how it fits together, but uh, it does. And the same is true here. In verse 8, he looks at the human reason behind this prejudice. God intended it for good, but man alive, does Haman have bad motivations. And uh, so let's read verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, 
There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. By the way, there are handouts if you're wanting to follow along with an outline there. He's trying to give the best argument that he can to King Darius. And I want to go through the argument. First reason he gives is these Jews are a threat. And uh, he does it a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, uh, he doesn't call them Jews. He calls them a certain people. And I think this gives an air of mystery to what he is saying. For, for example, if in, if in next week, you know, the government announces that uh, spread throughout every village, hamlet, and, and city, you know, of our nation, there's this mysterious rebel group that's going to try to disrupt everything that they can. That's, and try to overthrow the government, that's a little bit more scary than to say, you know, one of the states, Iowa, is, uh, you know, declared rebellion against the city. That's kind of defined and confined. And it's not quite as, uh, you know, the other ones is like, how do, you, how do you deal with it? It seems a lot more dangerous. Then he, he adds to that idea by saying that they were scattered and dispersed among the people. So this is a clear reference to the fact that Babylon considered them to be a threat. Second reason he gives, they're everywhere. You don't know where they're going to pop up. They're in every, every province. The third reason he gives is these people are different. One version has it, they were scattered yet unassimilated. Okay, un and actually, actually there's a second one that translates that unassimilated as well. The New English Bible translates it, who keep themselves apart. Moore's commentary says, the first participle refers to the Jews being scattered throughout the 127 provinces of the empire, while the second participle refers to their self-imposed separateness or exclusiveness, a practice which helped them preserve their religious and ethnic identity. Now, that's a hint, by the way, that the Jews weren't as compromised as some people make them out to be. They still were quite different, or in modern lingo, we would say they're weird, right? People were looking... What is with these weird people? You know, isn't that what the New Testament says we're supposed to be? It says we're to be a peculiar people. We're to think differently. We're to act differently. And sometimes people are going to think those Christians, they're just weird, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, they're quite different. And, and so that's what's going on here in, in, in his argument. And uh, uh, I think this is really the difference that... Uh, that really stands behind all kinds of discrimination. Why do people, why are they racist? It's because I think sometimes people fear those who are different than them. You look in a, a school, pretty much any typical school, and you'll find there's probably one or two kids that always get picked on. Why are they picked on? They're different. Now, you add different to dangerous, and the, the desire to isolate and to do away with people is going to be elevated. So he's trying to give the idea there's a conspiracy here. Fourth reason, law. Verse 8 uh, goes on to say, he says, their laws are different from all other people's. Now, why would they care? Why would they care that they had different laws? Um, I think it's because Darius would have seen competing laws as illustrating competing authorities. Now, anytime you submit to a law, you're submitting to an authority that is over you. And Darius would not have had any problem with their having different laws than, than uh, you know, the customs that they had were, so long as those laws were seen as being 
subsumed to Darius. If there was ever a conflict, if they were willing to change and obey Darius, no problems. You can have any kind of weird laws you want to have. He was very uh, broad-minded, a broad-minded uh, person. But he sees it as a threat here because these different laws, when they came into conflict, the Jewish law held precedence. And so I want you to notice, he says, their laws are different from all other people's and they do not keep the king's laws. Now, he can only think, think of one example, probably, and it's Mordecai's absolute refusal uh, to disobey God's law. You know, in Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, last few verses, uh, it commanded people they may never honor an Amalekite, the, the, the Jews there. God had declared war there. So that was the only example, and it's possible that Haman had interviewed some other Jews and he had found out that um, when push came to shove, that uh, if there was a difference, the Jewish law took precedence. And so he brings this up to King Darius. Haman's not dumb. He knows this is going to upset Darius because it lowers Darius from being the sovereign to being a subject, and it makes God to be king of kings and lord of lords. And we've already seen that's a problem for Darius because he has declared himself to have an absolute monopoly of power. You show me the, the laws of a nation, I'll show you the God of that nation. And here, clearly the God, he may not have called himself God, but the God of this nation is Darius. And I think, unfortunately, in America, our nation has been drifting more and more in that direction. We used to have uh, the laws of the Bible clearly on the books of, of, uh, of our nation, and I think magistrates recognized that the only authority that they had was a delegated authority. It's delegated by God in the Scriptures. But uh, that has, that has uh, not become... We still have on our money one nation under God. Well, what's he talking about under God? He's talking about jurisdiction there. We still have that on our money, but uh, I think we have moved further and further away from that. For example, in the courts... There have been times where um, a judge, a lower judge, has quoted a verse with regard to a penalty, you know, that was deserving of death. And even though there was no, no other technicality that they could do away with, when it was appealed, they uh, threw it out as a mistrial because they quoted the Scriptures. And so the laws of God have been cast out of the, the courts, out of Congress, out of the schools, and America has jurisdictionally moved itself from under God and accountable only to itself, and that is humanism, pure and simple. And the idea of limited powers, limited jurisdiction, accountability, that used to be part and parcel of what America was about. And now it's offensive to many. P people do not like that idea. Now, the last reason that he gives is that pluralism has to have its limits. And uh, in verse 8 he says... Uh, therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Now, we've already seen he was a very broad-minded, uh, very pluralistic uh, person. Why this attitude? I mean, he's already given a lot of money to build the temple in Israel. He's given money to uh, build temples uh, throughout the empire. He's been a, a very generous God. But you know what? He has, at the same time, declared jurisdiction over those temples that he built. Um, and I think this is the issue that churches need to be careful about and watch out for on the issue of incorporation, you know, and 501c3 status, that they are not putting themselves, and I think incorporation clearly puts the church jurisdictionally under the state. It's interesting in archaeology, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when they were uh, digging up the ruins of um, the Egyptian temple, 
they were seeing the seal, the royal seal or the imprint of Darius on all kinds of bricks throughout the temple. What's going on here? Well, Darius <laughs> had financed it, and that's one of the prices uh, of this, is that there's this jurisdictional, instead of seeing the church and the state as side-by-side -side governments, what happens is the state is over the church and it becomes a state church. And here's the irony. No church has been forced to do that in America. Churches have voluntarily, without any compulsion, just gone in and said, we want to be a state church. Now, they've not thought of it as a state church, but that's exactly what incorporation is. They have subjected themselves jurisdictionally under the state. It's one thing for families to do it because families, um, uh, uh, well, we won't, get, we won't go down that road. We've, we've said probably enough on, on that subject. But pluralism does uh, have its limits. And the second area in which pluralism has limits is that usually they're so broad-minded that they don't like absolutes and they don't like people who are narrow-thinking. They're extremely intolerant of people who think uh, more narrowly than they do. And uh, he was quite willing, Darius was quite willing to have all kinds of different uh, ideas out there, um, uh, just like we, we do today. But pluralists today, the one thing they consider a heresy is an absolute. They're absolutely opposed to absolutes, right? And uh, they become extremely intolerant of that. And a lot of Christians don't realize that when they plur when they appeal to pluralism, they think, this is a great thing. This is going to bring freedom. It brings exactly the opposite. It brings freedom to everything except for the narrow view of Christ who says there is only one way to the Father, and it's through Him. And so uh, they may not uh, try to get rid of people by killing them like they do here, um, but if you, if you are not willing to say that, for example, homosexuality is okay, you may lose your job. There's other ways in which this phrase, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain, comes to pass in their lives. Now, we do need to hurry on. Verse 9 shows the oil that greases the bureaucracy. And it's money. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Uh, one commentator said that was a fabulous sum of money. And some people say that's impossible sum of money. I mean, it's just a huge amount of money. And uh, some have tried to convert it into dollars, but that's really meaningless because that constantly changes depending on the value of gold. So what uh, one commentator said, the, the, probably the clearest way of understanding this is that that sum was two-thirds of the gross national product of the entire empire of Persia. Two-thirds. That's an enormous amount of money that they're going to pour back into the coffers. Not of the taxes. That's two-thirds of the gross national product. Uh, and they're basing that, how, how they can know that, you know, they're basing that on Herodotus' statements. But um, uh, the Jews must have been rather wealthy. But here he's greasing the wheels and he's saying, look, your coffers have been dwindling as you've gone to war, and uh, this action that we're going to take uh, is going to replenish those coffers. And Darius thinks that's pretty cool. And I think today we continue many times to find this money issue greasing the wheels of bureaucracy. It wasn't too many months ago that uh, America linked together with Israel and with northern Angola on a joint venture. And uh, using our 
sophisticated technology, they were able to track down and assassinate Savimbi, who was the president of southern Angola. And you wonder, why in the world would we be engaged in something like that? Well, the president of northern Angola promised us a stake in the oil that's offshore. And if you look at the conflicts that America has been involved in over the past 50 years and the conflicts we've been totally unwilling to be involved in, many times it's simply the buck. It's how will, how will America financially benefit, not in terms of what is in the best interests uh, of America as a, as, as a whole. Anyway, Darius's decision is bought with money in verse 11 when he says, the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. He's not refusing the money. Commentators point out he's not giving it back to him. Um, uh, this was a polite way in the Middle East of accepting a gift. And um, uh, you can see it with Abraham when he's buying the field of Machpelah. Um, the guy says, ah, oh, yeah, you can just have it. And, uh, you know, as they're bargaining, he ends up paying an extremely high price. That's the way they started off. David, the same thing when he bought the, uh, the temple property. Oh, you can have it. Ends up buying it. Uh, and we, we saw this in Africa all the time. You start by being polite and saying, oh, no, nothing, or um, uh, whatever. So here's how Moore uh, translates this, paraphrases it, I should say. If you want to spend it that way, it's all right with me. <laughs> in other words, uh, you can use this money, but it's going to be in the king's interest. Now, Darius has another problem. This is point four in your outline. There are limits to what one person can control. He wants to control everything, but he knows that he can't. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He's got limited time, limited resources, limited abilities. And this is the thing that every administration that's heading toward being a messianic state, a big government state like America, every administration without fail has had to deal with. It is that... Uh, they uh, abdicate responsibility in their delegating. Verse 10 shows Darius giving enormous, enormous leeway. Look at verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Now, by giving that ring, he's basically giving his signature. He's saying, you can operate in my name. I don't have the time to think about this. You just, do, you just do whatever needs to be done is basically what he is saying. And it's a problem every administration has had to deal with. Congress does not have the time to be able to play God. And so they give away work with little accountability. It's one of the reasons why agencies have been multiplying on Capitol Hill. <clears throat> they cannot possibly do all of the work that even one agency is responsible to do. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have been to Washington, D.C. I think you'll know what I'm talking about. These agencies are enormous. I had no idea. I had not the foggiest idea how enormous. The Department of uh, Agriculture was probably the biggest building. And it's hard to judge, you know, distance there because their blocks, you know, may be equivalent to 10 of our blocks. But this thing just went on forever this way and forever the other way. And it was going up. I don't know if there's tens of thousands of offices in there. And the Congress cannot even keep up with the paperwork that is generated by these agencies. Many congressmen, uh, you've, you complain to the congressmen about an action that's taken by an agency, and they'll write back to you and say, you know, we can't possibly know everything that's going on. And even in the votes we're taking, we don't have the time to do all the research. For example, they'll have 
thousands of pages, you know, on a tax bill, they'll give it to an aide and they'll say, look through this, you know, and see if you can find any pork belly things we don't approve of. And, uh, you know, the aide will try to look through that. But you multiply that many times over by the paperwork that is constantly generated by these agencies and you get a, a bit of an understanding how their lack of omniscience means they cannot possibly control the big government uh, completely. Uh, sometimes they'll just tell the people to do whatever is necessary, let them know the results. And I think that's in part what's happening here. He does not have the time or the energy to even talk about much this, uh, this project. And so government wants to play God. They don't have the attributes of God. And so they have an ungodly abdication of their responsibility. And by the way, that's not just a problem of big state. It's a problem of big church, and it's a problem of big business many times as well. But when I read through verses 11 through 14, which I'm going to do right now, I immediately saw the incredible power that our unaccountable agencies have. Let's, let's go ahead and start at verse 11. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Now, the leeway he gives is just breathtaking in its scope and power. But I think that is exactly the kind of power that Congress has given to so many of these, these uh, uh, agencies in Washington, D.C. Here is the money. Do what seems good to you. And, you know, if you know somebody that can write a good report, Darius will be happy and Congress will be happy. Verse 12, Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. Just like OSHA and IRS and other agencies have life and death power over businesses and sometimes destroy businesses, he is given life and death power to act in the name of the king. He doesn't have to get any permission. He's got that signet ring. He's got the signature already. It's just an incredible power that he has been given. And, and just as a side note, um, I'll tell you, I will get excited about some of the changes that have uh, happened in this most recent election when I see agencies that have crept up in the last 25 years abolished, when I see big government becoming lesser government, and when I see more accountability. I want to see the results before I get too excited about this. But anyway, let's continue on, verses 13 and 14. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. Now, actually, compared to the millions of pages of, of uh, uh, decrees and regulations that America's unregulated, unaccountable, and unconstitutional agencies are producing, what Haman's doing is, is child's play. And it what they do may not be quite as disastrous as what, uh, as what Haman has done here, but we ought not to underestimate the incredible evils that can come when government unwisely delegates their signet ring to unaccountable agencies. Actually, I, I don't think it's true that, that uh, Haman's was maybe uh, uh, more pervasive. When you look at all the numbers of abortions that have happened in America, uh, you know, it's probably more than what happened under Haman. But anyway, I think you get the point. 
Verse 15, the couriers went out and hastened by the king's command. Now, I want you to notice something here. The king probably didn't even put his finger. He didn't even read that decree. And yet he cannot plead ignorance. It is his command. He gave the authorization for that, uh, that, that committee. And I think in the same way in America, when people say that's not our decision, you know, that's uh, such and such agency's decision, we need to hold the feet of uh, our, our representatives to the fire and say, no, they are agencies that are responsible, are accountable to you, and you can't get off the hook. It is your decision. It was King Darius's decision, even though he probably had not even uh, read, uh, read it. Anyway, continuing on in verse 15... And the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel, so the king and Haman sat down to drink. And that shows the incredible trivialization of life, how lightly he treated the lives of these other people. And I think it parallels the light way in which people treat life in, uh, in abortion, out of sight, out of mind. And I don't think it's always intentional. I'm not saying it's necessarily always intentional. I don't think it was intentional that the Jews themselves be wiped out. For example, he may have thought that this was a terrorist group. But it says there, Haman sat, uh, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now, why would they be perplexed? Well, for the last eight years, Darius has been incredibly friendly to the Jews. He's done all kinds of good things for the Jews. And so they're perplexed. What in the world is going on? You know, I don't think that Darius had a clue that the Jews were being targeted. And the reason I say I don't think he has a clue is because within a, is it a week? It's just a few days. He um, can't fall asleep. He gets his people to read the records to him. He realizes, oh, Mordecai has never been rewarded. And he knows Mordecai is a Jew at that point. And furthermore, he tells Haman right there in the, in the bedroom, he says, um, I want you to go out and do whatever to Haman the Jew. There's nothing clicking in his head. He's just annihilated all of these Jews. Why would he want to honor a Jew at this point? No, I don't think he knows. I don't think he has the foggiest notion that he has killed off all of these Jews and Mordecai, this guy who has saved his life. And I think many times that's what happens in Congress. These people do not have a clue at the widespread repercussions of the quote-unquote good things that they're trying to, uh, trying to do. Uh, and the reason is, is because big government always gets bigger than one person can comprehend, or even than a group of people, elected officials, can comprehend. Uh, you have to be God and have the attributes of God to run the kind of extensive government we have in, a, in, in an accountable and a proper manner. It, it, it's just another argument uh, against that. Now, that's related to point five, that citizens were treated as chattel property that could be transferred and disposed of as desire. Uh, verse 11 again, And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And so the people are treated no differently than the money. There are statistics, there are things that are to be used. They are not accountable to the people, uh, utterly unaccountable. They're not servants of the, the people. Now, that's one area, actually, where we have a difference in America because our elected officials are accountable to the people. They can be elected out, but not the agencies. The agencies, many times it's the same people that staff them no matter what administration is there. And many congressmen will tell you, we're not the power. The power is in those agencies. They're the ones who are running this country. And I think that is true. And they're the ones who are utterly unaccountable and cannot be voted for. 
And so in this passage, in this book, I think you've got an incredibly marvelous description of what big government, humanistic government, looks like. And it's another great argument against it. Now, the interesting thing about what's happening here is that it is a point-by-point fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah and two prophecies in Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog. Now, when I was a dispensationalist, I used to believe and uh, was taught that the battle of Gog and Magog, both of them, are in the future, one before the millennium, one after the millennium. And I now still believe that there's two battles of Gog and Magog, but one's already history. It's uh, happened during the reign of Darius, and that became a symbol of a non-literal, a symbol of a, a, a kind of a conflict at the end of time that happens. Everybody agrees they are of such a different character that they have to be to two totally different battles. But I think the one uh, in the time of Darius was a symbol of the other. And um, I want to spend just a little bit of time, maybe yours is the only overhead here, and I may need in a little bit, a bit, uh, a bit more room on there. There you go. I'm going to give you a few points, and the first four points that you see here are points that uh, James Jordan uh, clued me into, and uh, he had a couple of others as well. But as I did more research, I began to see, man, these fit together like hand and glove. They are perfect. And so I'm going to be giving 15 uh, proofs altogether. Uh, we saw already last week that the term Agag was a term for any Amalekite leader. Second, how the Amalekites descended from, the, from Magog, the son of Japheth. And so there's a Magog connection. And then there's also a Gog connection. We saw how Gog and Agog have the same meaning. They're almost identical in the Hebrew, but what's more to the point is the Septuagint translates the word Gog as Agag. Okay, And so the ancient Jews who translated it, they also saw those two words as being exactly the, 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 exactly the same. Um, we also saw, this is point four, that there's a reference to Haman's name in the Ezekiel prophecy three times. Uh, the valley where his dead would be buried would be called the Valley of Haman Gog. And there is a city then that would be called Hamona. And I think just those four points, first four points up there, I think they closely tie these two passages together. And I want to give you 11 more uh, reasons why this is, the, uh, uh, this is the battle of Gog and Magog. Point five, even though both passages, Ezekiel and Esther, indicate that this conflict is going to be an empire-wide conflict, it's just an enormous conflict, Neither passage says that the king or the emperor is leading the troops or is behind the, the, the battle. Both passages say it's going to be a prince, and a prince is a subsidiary, right? It's going to be a prince, and Ezekiel uh, says that it's going to be the chief prince. Okay, well, what does Esther 3, verse 1 say? says that he's among the princes, but his seat was set above all of the other princes. So he's a chief prince. So we've got a, a connection that we can see there. Sixth, it would occur in a time of history when Jerusalem was without walls. Ezekiel 38 verse 11 says, All of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now that kind of rules out a future interpretation because Jerusalem does have the old walls there. 
And uh, it rules out the interpretation that Gary DeMar and some others have that this occurred during the, the time of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, during the Maccabees, because they clearly had walls, uh, not only around Jerusalem, but around several other towns as well. And it would rule out any interpretation that would occur eight years from, that, from this chapter. Because in eight years, Nehemiah is going to come back to Jerusalem and build the walls. And so there's just a small time period within which this battle of Gog and Magog uh, could occur. Seventh, the countries mentioned in Ezekiel as supporting this Gogite or this Agagite and trying to destroy Israel, they're exactly the same nations that you find in the book of Esther. And I give uh, some of the references there, but I thought what I would do is try to give you... Does that whole mat fit on there? Why don't you take this other one out? See if you can read that. This is, uh, this is Persia. And what I want to show you is some of the names that occur in the Ezekiel passage. And you'll see, this is, this is uh, the empire under Darius. And actually, it, um, uh, yeah, around 500... Uh, BC. Actually, they had lost in 500 uh, Ethiopia, but Darius has Ethiopia. Cambyses was the one who conquered it. So far on the southwest side, uh, Ezekiel mentions Ethiopia. Then you've got the coastlands. That's this whole region up there that are being mentioned. And then you've got Tubal, which would be right up in this area. And then you've got Tagarma, which is up in the Caucasus Mountains. And uh, you've got Dedan down here. And then back in those days when Ezekiel was written, uh, Persia just had this part here. So Persia is the eastern part. And then Ezekiel says it talks about all of the nations of the empire. So you've got all the nations in between. So you can see just the way Ezekiel lays it out, it's exactly the same uh, region from Ethiopia to India. But interestingly... Ezekiel leaves out, and this just came to me last night, why did Ezekiel leave out India? It does not mention India in there, and I thought, well, you know, is it just a curiosity? No, there must be a reason, and it dawned on me, oh yeah, of course, Darius doesn't conquer India for four more years. It's not till 506 that Darius conquers India, and so Ethiopia is mentioned as being a part of this conflict, but not India. So again, you look at some of the time details and the, the small ways in which they would have to fit, and it's just remarkable how they fit hand in glove. So I've been pretty excited as I've been, as I've been studying through uh, this passage. Okay, that's the seventh one. Uh, eighth, a chief motivation, and uh, I'll take that, that back. Eighth, a chief motivation in both texts is both hatred for God's people and a desire to plunder the Jews. So that's another connection. Ninth, in both passages it starts out looking like the Jews are going to be totally wiped out, and then there's a reversal where they wipe out their, their enemies. And uh, both passages hint that they do not take the plunder for themselves. They don't touch the plunder for themselves. I believe that they devote it to the temple. And we'll look at that a little bit uh, later time. Tenth, both books uh, talk about the enormous numbers of dead which need to be buried. 
11th, Ezekiel says it would take seven months before the land could be purified from all the dead bodies. In fact, Ezekiel says rather than burying the dead, they're going to go around putting markers in the ground near to bones and near to bodies. Why are they waiting? Why don't they just bury it right away? And uh, there was an author who explained this. He thinks it's still future. He doesn't realize it's past, but his comments on this are right to the point. So I want to read what he has to say. It relates to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is exactly seven months later. He says, According to Ezekiel 39.15, seven months shall be needed to cleanse the land. This gives another clue to when this prophecy might be fulfilled. According to Numbers 19, anyone who touches a dead body must be cleansed within a seven-day period with water mixed with the ashes of the unblemished red heifer. The water needed for this cleansing is only drawn out of the pool of Siloam beginning on the second day of the Feast of Tabernacles called Simchat Beit Hashoeva. Until the ashes of the red heifer are available... And until the water is drawn during the Feast of Tabernacles, there will be no way possible to safely bury dead bodies left from the battle of Gog and Magog and remain undefiled under Mosaic law. This is why Ezekiel 39 says that for seven months, the people of Israel will only place markers to point out where dead bodies lie. After seven months, Israel will employ people to bury the dead because they will be able to return from their work and be cleansed within the required time specified by Numbers 19 within three days after defilement to be ended on the seventh day cleansing period. More specifically, the Feast of Purim is seven months prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, and those employed to bury the dead after a Purim battle would have to wait until the following Feast of Tabernacles to ensure that they would not be unclean for longer than seven days after touching these dead bodies. And so the seven-month timing mentioned in Ezekiel, I think, is just perfect as well. Now, another timing aspect is that Ezekiel 38.8 links Gog and Magog battle with Israel having just returned to the land. Well, Israel has just returned to the land previous to Darius. In fact, there's another crew that's just gone, what, how many years is it? Uh, uh, let's see, seventh year they left, and this is in the twelfth year. So it's not very many years earlier Ezra returns uh, with another, another group. A thirteenth argument is that this has to be fulfilled during a time when Israel is divided up into tribes, chapter 37, verse 19. So that rules out anything future, because there are no tribes of Israel. Okay, They've all been so intermarried and intermingled that they cannot be separated as tribes. Point 14 rules out a present fulfillment, because this occurs at a time when the enemy uses horses, burning these weapons, perhaps as memorial fires, and that... Uh, Nehemiah does not come back to Jerusalem to build the walls for another seven years. And there may be a connection, but probably you can just scratch that one, okay? The other ones, I think, clearly connect uh, the two passages together. Now, if this is true, then we're back to where we started this sermon, aren't we? It means God planned this enormous conflict. God was using these battles to shake his people up, to cause them to repent of any sins that they might have, to cause them to depend upon him. And so what we need to ask is, why is it that God has been allowing these kinds of things to happen in America? Why is it that uh, God has allowed humanism to dominate and persecution and, and uh, calamities to come about for his people? We don't know all the reasons, but one of the repeated reasons that keeps coming up in the prophets is that God's people have neglected his laws and God was using the, the calamities and the pressures of foreign nations uh, to draw them back. In fact, this is what Christ said. He said, if we 
if we fail to follow his blueprints and we fail to be light and we fail to be salt, what does he do? He casts us out to be trampled underfoot of men, right? Well, this looks like being trampled underfoot of men. Here's what Ezekiel several years before had said. I would scatter, and this is about the exile. I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments, but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. He says, I'm the one who, because you didn't like my laws, okay, I'll give you laws that you're not going to like either. I'm going to give you humanistic laws that aren't good for you and you're not even going to be, be able to live by them. So that was God's purposes in their lives. And I think God may indeed be doing exactly the same thing in America, allowing Christians who have rejected Old Testament case law, many have rejected the Old Testament as a whole, and said, you don't like my laws? I'm going to cause you to live under more and more humanistic tyranny until finally you cry out and say, I want the liberty, the perfect law of liberty that your word brings to me. In Ezekiel, God puts most of the blame on the shepherds of Israel. They were supposed to be feeding the flock, preaching to, the, to them the whole counsel of God, and they were not. They were preaching what the people wanted to hear, and they were advancing their own careers as a result, and God blasted the shepherds of Israel for doing that, and he said, as a result, I'm going to be sending judgment amongst the people who were in exile. And I think, again, this is in part that judgment. And then he says, I will bring them to the land, I will cause them to follow after my laws. And he says, they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely. Now, can you see there's just an incredible purpose for the book of Esther in the canon. We started with stories of disaster that God has brought in modern times and the good that he brought out of them. And we can't always know why or what God will do in our future. But there are some things we can know for certain and that we need to take responsibility for. The first is we need to trust God no matter what happens. The second thing is if we have any ways in which we are out of accord with God's laws, we need to repent. We need to align ourselves. Third thing we can do is we can try to influence the other churches and other Christians of this city. Try to bring reformation into their lives and tell them, look, God's laws are important. If we want freedom in our nation, we've got to look to the perfect law of liberty. Hand out videotapes, not hand them out. Lend them out, you know. Hand out literature and just talk to people and seek and prayerfully seek to advance the, 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 the reformation in, in our city. And I think if Israel had uh, repented earlier, they very well may have been able to avoid the kind of pressures that uh, God had to bring here. But it's my prayer we would advance the laws of God, His kingdom, His purposes, so that humanism would be turned back sooner rather than later. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank You for Your Word and the warnings that it gives, the encouragement that it gives. We thank You that You're in total control of everything, that You're working all things together for our good. And Father, even the conflicts that many times You use to purify Your bride are uh, conflicts that they're totally unaware uh, of their purpose because the shepherds of Israel have not been instructing them. I pray that you would raise up shepherds who would feed your flock, shepherds who understand your word. I pray, Father, that you would bring reformation to the church, not only of Omaha, but throughout this world. We desperately need, O oh God, to become once again a vibrant church that has salt and light and uh, will make an impact and a difference in this world. 
I pray, Father, it would not just be uh, uh, the uh, truncated idea of salvation that is preached, but, Father, uh, salvation in business, salvation in every area of life, that we would see that the good news is good news that encompasses all of life. Help us, Father, to look at the whole counsel of God and having trusted and tasted and seen that you are good, uh, trusting you in whatever your blueprints are, that they are good and for our welfare as well. Help us to be a people who make a difference. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.